Chapter forty one of A Hazard of New Fortunes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. So far as the Dryfoos family was concerned, the dinner might as well have been given at Frescobaldi's rooms. None of the ladies appeared. Mrs. Dryfoos was glad to escape to her own chamber, where she sat before an autumnal fire, shaking her head and talking to herself at times with the foreboding of evil which old women like her make part of their religion. The girl stood just out of sight at the head of the stairs, and disputed which guest it was at each arrival. Mrs. Mandel had gone to her room to write letters, after beseeching them not to stand there. When Kendricks came, Christine gave Mela a little pinch, equivalent to a little mocking shriek, for on the ground of his long talk with Mela at Mrs. Horn's, in the absence of any other admirer, they based a superstition of his interest in her. When Beaton came, Mela returned the pinch, but awkwardly, so that it hurt, and then Christine involuntarily struck her. Frescobaldi's men were in possession everywhere. They had turned the cook out of her kitchen and the waitress out of her pantry. The reluctant Irishman at the door was supplemented by a vivid Italian, who spoke French with the guests, and said, Bien, monsieur, and tout de suite, and merci to all, as he took their hats and coats, and effused a hospitality that needed no language, but the gleam of his eyes and teeth and the play of his eloquent hands. From his professional dress-coat, lustrous with the grease spotted on it at former dinners and parties, they passed to the frocks of the elder and younger Dryfoos in the drawing-room, which assumed informality for the affair, but did not put their wearers wholly at ease. The father's coat was of black broadcloth, and he wore it unbuttoned. The skirts were long, and the sleeves came down to his knuckles. He shook hands with his guests, and the same dryness seemed to be in his palm and throat, as he huskily asked each of them to take a chair. Conrad's coat was of modern texture and cut, and was buttoned about him as if it concealed a bad conscience within its lapels. He met March with his entreating smile, and he seemed no more capable of coping with the situation than his father. They both waited for Fulkerson, who went about and did his best to keep life in the party during the half-hour that passed before they sat down at dinner. Beaton stood gloomily aloof, as if waiting to be approached on the right basis before yielding an inch of his ground. Colonel Woodburn, awaiting the moment when he could sally out on his hobby, kept himself entrenched within the dignity of a gentleman, and examined askance the figure of old Lindau, as he stared about the room with his fine head up and his empty sleeve dangling over his wrist. March felt obliged to him for wearing a new coat in the midst of that hostile luxury, and he was glad to see Dryfoos make up to him and begin to talk with him, as if he wished to show him particular respect, though it might have been because he was less afraid of him than of the others. He heard Lindau saying, "'But the name is Charman,' and Dreyfus beginning to explain his Pennsylvania Dutch origin, and he suffered himself with a sigh of relief to fall into talk with Kendricks, who was always pleasant. He was willing to talk about something beside himself, and had no opinions that he was not ready to hold in abeyance for the time being out of kindness to others. In that group of impassioned individualities, March felt him a refuge and comfort, with his harmless dilettante intention of some day writing a novel, and his belief that he was meantime collecting material for it. Fulkerson, while breaking the ice for the whole company, was mainly engaged in keeping Colonel Woodburn thawed out. 
He took Kendricks away from March and presented him to the Colonel as a person who, like himself, was looking into social conditions. He put one hand on Kendricks' shoulder and one on the Colonel's, and made some flattering joke, apparently at the expense of the young fellow, and then left them. March heard Kendricks protest in vain, and the Colonel say, gravely, "'I do not wonder, sir, that these things interest you. They constitute a problem which society must solve, or which will dissolve society.' And he knew from that formula, which the Colonel had once used with him, that he was laying out a road for the exhibition of the hobby's paces later. Fulkerson came back to March, who had turned toward Conrad Dryfoos, and said, "'If we don't get this thing going pretty soon, it'll be the death of me.' and just then Frescobaldi's butler came in and announced to Dryfoos that dinner was served. The old man looked toward Fulkerson with a troubled glance, as if he did not know what to do. He made a gesture to touch Lindau's elbow. Fulkerson called out, "'Here's Colonel Woodburn, Mr. Dryfoos,' as if Dryfoos were looking for him, and he set the example of what he was to do by taking Lindau's arm himself." Mr. Lindau was going to sit at my end of the table, alongside of March. Stand not upon the order of your going, gentlemen, but fall in at once. He contrived to get Dryfoos and the Colonel before him, and he let March follow with Kendricks. Conrad came last with Beaton, who had been turning over the music at the piano, and chafing inwardly at the whole affair. At the table Colonel Woodburn was placed on Dryfoos's right, and March on his left, March sat on Fulkerson's right, with Lindau next him, and the young men occupied the other seats. "'Put you next to March, Mr. Lindau,' said Fulkerson, "'so you can begin to put Apollinaris in his champagne glass at the right moment. You know his little weakness of old. Sorry to say it's grown in him.' March laughed with kindly acquiescence in Fulkerson's wish to start the gaiety, and Lindau patted him on the shoulder. "'I know his weakness.' If he likes a glass of fine, it is because his loaf includes even his enemy, as Shakespeare called it. Ah, but Shakespeare couldn't have been thinking of champagne, said Kendricks. I suppose, sir, Colonel Woodman interposed with lofty courtesy, champagne could hardly have been known in his day. I suppose not, Colonel, returned the younger man deferentially. He seemed to think that sack and sugar might be a fault, but he didn't mention champagne. "'Perhaps he felt there was no question about that,' suggested Beaton, who then felt he had not done himself justice in the sally. "'I wonder just when Champagne did come in,' said March. "'I know when it ought to come in,' said Fulkerson. "'Before the soup.' They all laughed, and gave themselves the air of drinking Champagne out of tumblers every day, as men like to do. Dryfoos listened uneasily. He did not quite understand the allusions, though he knew what Shakespeare was well enough. Conrad's face expressed a gentle deprecation of joking on such a subject, but he said nothing. The talk ran on briskly through the dinner. The young men tossed the ball back and forth. They made some wild shots, but they kept it going, and they laughed when they were hit. The wine loosed Colonel Woodburn's tongue. He became very companionable with the young fellows with the feeling that a literary dinner ought to have a didactic scope he praised scott and addison as the only authors fit to form the minds of gentlemen kendricks agreed with him but wished to add the name of flaubert as a master of style style you know he added is the man very true sir you are quite right sir the colonel assented 
he wondered who Flaubert was. Beaton praised Baudelaire and Maupassant. He said these were the masters. He recited some lurid verses from Baudelaire. Lindau pronounced them a disgrace to human nature, and gave a passage from Victor Hugo on Louis Napoleon with his heavy German accent, and then he quoted Schiller. "'Ach, but that is beautiful. Not so?' he demanded of March. "'Yes, beautiful, but of course you know I think there's nobody like Heine.' Lindau threw back his great old head and laughed, showing a want of teeth under his moustache. He put his hand on March's back. This boy, he was a boy then, was so crazy to begin reading Heine that he commenced with the dictionary before he knows any grammar, and we pick it out vort by vort together. He was a pretty gay boy in those days, hey, Lindau? asked Fulkerson, burlesquing the old man's accent, with an impudent wink that made Lindau himself laugh. But in the dark ages, I mean, there in Indianapolis. Just how long ago did you old codgers meet there, anyway? Fulkerson saw the restiveness in Dryfoos's eye at the purely literary course the talk had taken. He had intended it to lead up that way to business, to every other week. But he saw that it was leaving Dryfoos too far out, and he wished to get it on the personal ground where everybody is at home. "'Let me see,' mused Lindau. "'Was it in fifty-nine or sixty, Passel? "'It was a year or two before the war broke out, anyway.' "'Those were exciting times,' said Dryfoos, "'making his first entry into the general talk. "'I went down to Indianapolis with the first company from our place, "'and I saw the red shirts pouring in everywhere. "'They had a song, "'Oh, never mind the weather, but get over double trouble, "'for we're bound for the land of Canaan.' The fellows locked arms, and went singing it up and down four or five abreast in the moonlight, crowded everybody else off the sidewalk. "'I remember, I remember,' said Lindau, nodding his head slowly up and down. "'A good many of them never come back from that land of Canaan, Mr. Dreyfus.' "'You're right, Mr. Lindau, but I reckon it was worth it, the country we've got now. Here, young man,' he caught the arm of the waiter who was going round with the champagne bottle. Fill up Mr. Lindau's glass there. I want to drink the health of those old times with him. Here's to your empty sleeve, Mr. Lindau. God bless it. No offence to you, Colonel Woodburn, said Dryfoos, turning to him before he drank. Not at all, sir, not at all, said the Colonel. I will drink with you, if you will permit me. We'll all drink, standing, cried Fulkerson. Help March to get up, somebody. Fill high the bowl with Samian Apollinaris for Conrad. Now then, hurrah for Lindau! They cheered and hammered on the table with the butts of their knife-handles. Lindau remained seated. The tears came into his eyes. He said, I thank you, gentlemen, and hiccuped. I'd have went into the war myself, said Dryfoos, but I was raising a family of young children, and I didn't see how I could leave my farm. But I helped to fill up the quota at every call, and when the volunteering stopped I went round with the subscription paper myself and we offered as good bounties as any in the state. My substitute was killed in one of the last skirmishes, in fact, after Lee's surrender, and I've took care of his family more or less ever since. By the way, March, said Fulkerson, what sort of an idea would it be to have a good war story? Might be a serial, in the magazine? The war has never fully panned out in fiction yet. It was used a good deal just after it was over, and then it was dropped. I think it's time to take it up again. I believe it would be a card. 
It was running in March's mind that Dryfoos had an old rankling shame in his heart for not having gone into the war, and that he had often made that explanation of his course without having ever been satisfied with it. He felt sorry for him. The fact seemed pathetic. It suggested a dormant nobleness in the man. Beaton was saying to Fulkerson, "'You might get a series of sketches by substitutes. The substitutes haven't been much heard from in the war literature. How would the autobiography of a substitute do? You might follow him up to the moment he was killed in the other man's place, and inquire whether he had any right to the feelings of a hero when he was only hired in the place of one. Might call it the career of a deputy hero.' I fancy, said March, that there was a great deal of mixed motive in the men who went into the war as well as in those who kept out of it. We canonized all that died or suffered in it, but some of them must have been self-seeking and low-minded, like men in other vocations. He found himself saying this in Dreyfus's behalf. The old man looked at him gratefully at first, he thought, and then suspiciously. Lindau turned his head toward him and said, You are right, Passel, you are right. I have seen on the field of battle the worst exhibitions of human paceness, jealousy, vanity, echoistic pride. I have seen men in the face of death itself governed by motives as low as, as business motives. Well, said Fulkerson, it would be a grand thing for every other week if we could get some of those ideas worked up into a series. It would make a lot of talk. Colonel Woodburn ignored him in saying, I think, Major Lindau. High private, brevet corporal, the old man interrupted in rejection of the title. Hendricks laughed and said, with a glance of appreciation at Lindau, Brevet corporal is good. Colonel Woodburn frowned a little and passed over the joke. I think Mr. Lindau is right. Such exhibitions were common to both sides, though if you gentlemen will pardon me for saying so, I think they were less frequent on ours. We were fighting more immediately for existence. We were fewer than you were, and we knew it. We felt more intensely that if each were not for all, then none was for any. The colonel's words made their impression. Dryfoos said with authority, That is so. Colonel Woodman, Fulkerson called out, if you'll work up those ideas into a short paper, say, three thousand words, I'll engage to make March take it. The colonel went on without replying. But Mr. Lindau is right in characterizing some of the motives that led men to the cannon's mouth as no higher than business motives, and his comparison is the most forcible that he could have used. I was very much struck by it. The hobby was out, the colonel was in the saddle, with so firm a seat that no effort sufficed to dislodge him. The dinner went on from course to course with barbaric profusion, and from time to time Fulkerson tried to bring the talk back to every other week. But perhaps because that was only the ostensible, and not the real object of the dinner, which was to bring a number of men together under Dreyfus's roof, and make them the witnesses of his splendor, make them feel the power of his wealth, Fulkerson's attempts failed. The colonel showed how commercialism was the poison at the heart of our national life, how we began as a simple agricultural people who had fled to these shores with the instinct divinely implanted of building a state such as the sun never shone upon before, how we had conquered the wilderness and the savage, how we had flung off in our struggle with the mother country the trammels of tradition and precedent, 
and had settled down a free nation to the practice of the arts of peace how the spirit of commercialism had stolen insidiously upon us and the infernal impulse of competition had embroiled us in a perpetual warfare of interests developing the worst passions of our nature and teaching us to trick and betray and destroy one another in the strife for money till now that impulse had exhausted itself and we found competition gone and the whole economic problem in the hands of monopolies the standard oil company the sugar trust the rubber trust and what not and now what was the next thing affairs could not remain as they were it was impossible and what was the next thing the company listened for the main part silently dryfoos tried to grasp the idea of commercialism as the colonel seemed to hold it he conceived of it as something like the dry goods business on a vast scale and he knew he had never been in that he did not like to hear competition called infernal he had always supposed it was something sacred but he approved of what colonel woodburn said of the standard oil company it was all true the standard oil had squeezed dryfoos once and made him sell at a lot of oil wells by putting down the price of oil so low in that region that he lost money on every barrel he pumped all the rest listened silently except lindau at every point the colonel made against the present condition of things he said more and more fiercely you are right you are right his eyes glowed his hand played with his knife hilt when the colonel demanded and what is the next thing he threw himself forward and repeated yes sir what is the next thing natural gas by thunder shouted fulkerson one of the waiters had profited by lindau's posture to lean over him and put down in the middle of the table a structure in white sugar it expressed frescobaldi's conception of a derrick and a touch of nature had been added in the flame of brandy which burned luridly up from a small pit in the centre of the base and represented the gas in combustion as it issued from the ground fulkerson burst into a roar of laughter with the words that recognized frescobaldi's personal tribute to dryfoos everybody rose and peered over at the thing while he explained the work of sinking a gas well as he had already explained it to frescobaldi in the midst of his lecture he caught sight of the caterer himself where he stood in the pantry doorway smiling with an artist's anxiety for the effect of his masterpiece come in come in frescobaldi we want to congratulate you fulkerson called to him here gentlemen here's frescobaldi's health they all drank and frescobaldi smiling brilliantly and rubbing his hands as he bowed right and left permitted himself to say to dryfoos you are pleased no you like first rate first rate said the old man but when the italian had bowed himself out and his guests had sunk into their seats again he said dryly to fulkerson i reckon they didn't have to torpedo that well or the derrick wouldn't look quite so nice and clean yes fulkerson answered and that ain't quite the style that little wiggly waggly blue flame that the gas acts when you touch off a good vein of it this might do for weak gas and he went on to explain they call it weak gas when they tap it two or three hundred feet down and anybody can sink a well in his back yard and get enough gas to light and heat his house i remember one fellow that had it blazing up from a pipe through a flower bed just like a jet of water from a fountain my 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 
you felt you gentlemen ought to go out and see that country all of you wish we could torpedo this well mr dryfoos and let em see how it works mind that one you torpedoed for me you know when they sink a well he went on to the company they can't always most generally sometimes tell whether they're going to get gas or oil or salt water why when they first began to bore for salt water out on the kanawa back about the beginning of the century they used to get gas now and then and then they considered it a failure they called the gas well a blower and give it up in disgust the time wasn't ripe for gas yet now they bore away sometimes till they get halfway to china and don't seem to strike anything worth speaking of then they put a dynamite torpedo down in the well and explode it they have a little bar of iron that they call a go-devil and they just drop it down on the business end of the torpedo and then stand from under if you please you hear a noise and in about half a minute you begin to see one and it begins to rain oil and mud and salt water and rocks and pitchforks and adoptive citizens and when it clears up the derrick's painted got a coat on it that'll wear in any climate that's what our honoured host meant generally get some visiting lady when there's one round to drop the go-devil but that day we had to put up with conrad here they offered to let me drop it but i declined i told him i hadn't much practice with go-devils in the newspaper syndicate business and i wasn't very well myself anyway astonishing fulkerson continued with the air of relieving his explanation by an anecdote how reckless they get using dynamite when they're torpedoing wells we stopped at one place where a fellow was handling the cartridges pretty freely and mr dryfoos happened to caution him a little and that ass came up with one of em in his hand and began to pound it on the buggy wheel to show how safe it was i turned green i was so scared but mr dryfoos kept his colour and kind of coaxed the fellow till he quit you could see he was the fool kind that if you tried to stop him he'd keep on hammering that cartridge just to show that it wouldn't explode till he blew you into kingdom come when we got him to go away mr dryfoos drove up to the foreman pay shaney off and discharge him on the spot he said he's too safe a man to have round he knows too much about dynamite i never saw anybody so cool dryfoos modestly dropped his head under fulkerson's flattery and without lifting it turned his eyes towards colonel woodburn i had all sorts of men to deal with in developing my property out there but i had very little trouble with them generally speaking aha you found the laboring man reasonable tractable tossle lindau put in uh, yes generally speaking dryfoos answered they mostly knew which side of their bread was buttered i did have one little difficulty at one time it happened to be when mr fulkerson was out there some of the men tried to form a union no no cried fulkerson let me tell that i know you wouldn't do yourself justice mr dryfoos and i want him to know how a strike can be managed if you take it in time you see some of those fellows got a notion that there ought to be a union among the working men to keep up wages and dictate to the employers and mr dryfoos's foreman was the ringleader in the business they understood pretty well that as soon as he found it out that foreman would walk the plank and so they watched out till they thought they had mr dryfoos just where they wanted him everything on the keen jump and every man worth his weight in diamonds and then they came to him and told him to sign a promise to keep that foreman to the end of the season 
or till he was through with the work on the Dreyfus and Hendry edition, under penalty of having them all knock off. Mr. Dreyfus smelled a mouse, but he couldn't tell where the mouse was. He said they did have him, and he signed, of course. There wasn't anything really against the fellow, anyway. He was a first-rate man, and he did his duty every time, only he'd got some of those ideas into his head, and they turned it. Mr. Dreyfus signed, and then he laid low. March saw Lindau listening with a mounting intensity, and heard him murmur in German, Shameful, shameful. Fulkerson went on. Well, it wasn't long before they began to show their hand, but Mr. Dreyfus kept dark. He agreed to everything. There never was such an obliging capitalist before. There wasn't a thing they asked of him that he didn't do with the greatest of pleasure, and all went merry as a marriage bell, till one morning a whole gang of fresh men marched into the Dreyfus and Hendry edition, under the escort of a dozen Pickertons, with repeating rifles at half-cock, and about fifty fellows found themselves out of a job. You never saw such a mad set. "'Pretty neat,' said Kendricks, who looked at the affair purely from an aesthetic point of view. Such a coup as that would tell tremendously in a play.' "'That was vile treason,' said Lindau in German to March. "'He's an infamous traitor. I cannot stay here. I must go.' He struggled to rise, while March held him by the coat, and implored him under his voice, "'For heaven's sakes, don't, Lindau. You owe it to yourself not to make a scene if you come here.' Something in it all affected him comically. He could not help laughing. The others were discussing the matter, and seemed not to have noticed Lindau, who controlled himself and sighed. "'You are right. I must have patience.' Beaton was saying to Dreyfus, "'Pity your Pinkertons couldn't have given them a few shots before they left.' "'No, that wasn't necessary,' said Dreyfus. "'I succeeded in breaking up the Union. I entered into an agreement with the other parties not to employ any man who would not swear that he was non-Union. If they had attempted violence, of course, they could have been shot.' but there was no fear of that. Those fellows can always be depended upon to cut one another's throats in the long run. "'But sometimes,' said Colonel Woodburn, who had been watching throughout for a chance to mount his hobby again, "'they make a good deal of trouble first. How was it in the great railroad strike of seventy-seven? "'Well, I guess there was a little trouble that time, Colonel,' said Fulkerson. But the men that undertake to override the laws and paralyze the industries of a country like this generally get left in the end. Yes, sir, generally, and up to a certain point always. But it's the exceptional that is apt to happen as well as the unexpected, and a little reflection will convince any gentleman here that there is always a danger of the exceptional in your system. The fact is, those fellows have the game in their hands already. A strike of the whole body of the Brotherhood of Engineers alone would starve out the entire Atlantic seaboard in a week, labor insurrection could make head at a dozen given points, and your government couldn't move a man over the roads without the help of the engineers. That is so, said Kendrick, struck by the dramatic character of the conjecture. He imagined a fiction dealing with the situation as something already accomplished. "'Why don't some fellow do the Battle of Dorking act with that thing?' said Fulkerson. "'It would be a card.' "'Exactly what I was thinking, Mr. Fulkerson,' said Kendricks. 
Fulkerson laughed. Telepathy, clear case of mind transference. Better see March here about it. I'd like to have it in every other week. It would make talk. Perhaps it might set your people to thinking as well as talking, said the Colonel. Well, sir, said Dryfoos, setting his lips so tightly together that his imperial stuck straight outward. If I had my way, there wouldn't be any brotherhood of engineers nor any other kind of labor union in the whole country. What? shouted Lindau. You would suppress the unions of the working men? Yes, I would. And what would you do for the unions of the capitalists, the trusts and combines and bulls? Would you take the right from one and give it to the other? Yes, sir, I would, said Dreyfus, with a wicked look at him. Lindau was about to roar back at him with some furious protest, but March put his hand on his shoulder imploringly, and Lindau turned to him to say in German, But it is infamous, infamous! What kind of a man is this? Who is he? He has the heart of a tyrant. Colonel Woodman cut in. You couldn't do that, Mr. Dreyfus, under your system. And if you attempted it with your conspiracy laws and that kind of thing, it might bring the climax sooner than you expected. Your commercialized society has built its house on the sands. It will have to go, but I should be sorry if it went before its time. You are right, sir, said Lindau. It would be a pity. I hope it will last till it feels its rottenness like Herod. But when it's our gums, then it dropped to pieces with the weight of its own corruption, what then? It's not supposed to be that a system of things like this can drop to pieces of its own accord, like the old Republic of Venice, said the Colonel. But when the last vestige of commercial society is gone, then we can begin to build anew, and we shall build upon the central idea not of the false liberty you now worship, but of responsibility, responsibility. The enlightened, the moneyed, the cultivated class shall be responsible to the central authority, emperor, duke, president, the name does not matter, for the national expense and national defense, and it shall be responsible to the working classes of all kinds for homes and lands and implements and the opportunity to labor at all times. The working classes shall be responsible to the leisure class for the support of its dignity in peace and shall be subject to its command in war. The rich shall warrant the poor against planless production and the ruin that now follows, against danger from without and famine from within, and the poor— No, 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 shouted Lindau. The state shall do that, the whole people. The men who walk shall have and shall eat, and the men that will not walk, they shall starve. But no man need starve. He will go to the state, and the state will see that he have work and that he have food. All the roads and mills and mines and lands shall be the people's and be run by the people for the people. There shall be no rich and no boor. There shall be no war any more, for what power would dare to attack a people bound together in a brotherhood like this? Lion and Lamb Act, said Fulkerson, not well knowing, after so much champagne, what words he was using. No one noticed him, and Colonel Woodman said coldly to Lindau, You are talking paternalism, sir. And you are talking feudalism, retorted the old man. The colonel did not reply. A silence ensued, which no one broke till Fulkerson said, 
Well, now, look here. If either one of these millenniums was brought about, by force of arms or otherwise, what would become of every other week? Who would want March for an editor? How would Beaton sell his pictures? Who would print Mr. Kendricks's little society verses and short stories? What would become of Conrad and his good works? Those named grinned in support of Fulkerson's diversion, but Lindau and the Colonel did not speak. Dryfoos looked down at his plate, frowning. A waiter came round with cigars, and Fulkerson took one. Ah, he said as he bit off the end, and leaned over to the emblematic masterpiece where the brandy was still feebly flickering. I wonder if there's enough natural gas left to light my cigar. His effort put the flame out and knocked the derrick over. It broke in fragments on the table. Fulkerson cackled over the ruin. I wonder if all Moffat will look that way after labor and capital have fought it out together. I hope this ain't ominous of anything personal, Dryfoos. I'll take the risk of it, said the old man harshly. He rose mechanically, and Fulkerson said to Frescobaldi's man, You can bring us the coffee in the library. The talk did not recover itself there. Lindau would not sit down, he refused coffee, and dismissed himself with a haughty bow to the company. Colonel Woodman shook hands elaborately all round when he had smoked his cigar. The others followed him. It seemed to March that his own good night from Dryfoos was dry and cold. End of chapter 41